Welcome to the IBSI Views Podcast. This is Gaia Lamperti, and today we are joined by Scott Eaton, CEO of Fintech Nivora. Hi, Gaia. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So, Scott, maybe we should start by introducing Nivora, what the company is doing at the moment, which sort of problems you are solving, and maybe an overview of the service offering and the customer base of Nivora. Sure. So, so really the best place to start in many ways is so we service the capital markets, the debt markets origination process. And if you think about it, capital markets are entrenched with complex fragmented, multi-party processes and legacy technology. And what we do, we believe that we're shaping the future of debt capital markets by connecting seamlessly the supply of capital with the demand for capital through digitization and automation. And what we're really doing is enabling dealers to work with issuers, other service providers, and investors to instantly negotiate, execute, and settle transactions, moving, hopefully, the market from the current T plus two or T plus five model as it is today to ultimately a T equals zero paradigm, effectively a one-click issuance for debt markets. That sounds brilliant. And in which way is this driving innovation in the primary capital markets overall? Sure. So, so maybe the way I like to think about it is really to look at the journey that we've been on as a company. Navora was started in 2016 by, like many fintech companies, you know, a handful of super intelligent, super exciting people. Um, and so the three founders of Navora came together and they decided to focus on debt capital markets. Their background facilitated that. Um, and what they had originally decided to do was focus on DLT, so distributed ledger technology, and apply it to the debt capital markets and look for a way to improve workflow and processes. And they did some really exciting things at that point. And if you cast your mind back to 2016, you know, DLT and blockchain was really of the moment and everybody was talking about it. And so these guys moved forward and they did the very first ever crypto-denominated bond offering, which was in 2017. Um, we did that on some software and we did it within an FCA sandbox. So we've always been within a regulated environment, recognizing that institutional finance operates in a regulated environment. They then moved forward and did a transaction for Santander in 2019, which I think was probably the first deal ever done on a public blockchain. It was on the Ethereum blockchain uh, for Santander. Um, but what was interesting was at about that point in time, The team recognized that, well, this is good. This is really exciting and innovative stuff. But blockchain in and of itself wasn't where the solutions were needed. It was really just the workflow process itself. And so the firm pivoted and started to develop what is our core offering, which is our Aurora software. And what does that focus on? What well, really does focus on the actual debt capital markets workflow process. So it is a modular tool that enables issuers, dealers to come together to negotiate the term sheet, draft the term sheet, have that feed through in real time, all parties can see it at the same time, work through, that then takes that data, which is typically in an unstructured format, puts it in a structured format, and feeds it downstream into the various other processes. And so then how does that really facilitate a better transaction? Well, what it really does is it allows you to use what are essence templates, and you can pre-fill a bunch of the information based on you know, previous transactions. You can then highlight those elements, which, which aren't going to be the same. So you will then put in new ones and, and draft those, and those then feed down. 
and it allows the transaction management group to work with the origination team, work with the legal team, the ops team inside the bank. But you can also then deploy it as a shopfront window. So we have a client that has deployed our software. They deployed it back in late June and now uses a shopfront window whereby they offer their services to both issuers and investors in a particular suite of products. And those people can choose from a menu. Um, I don't know. I want this sort of issuer, this sort of yield, this sort of tenor. And it immediately gins up the documents and makes that available then to the sales force or vice versa. And so it, it works out quite well. So interesting. Thank you so much. As you were brilliantly explaining the benefits of distributed ledger technology, I was thinking the past maybe 18 months have been a big acceleration for any sort of blockchain-based projects. Um, how has this been reflected in the capital markets as well? And which role did the shift to digitization caused by the pandemic play in growing and expanding the adoption of this technology? So actually, that's a great question. And in fact, if we look at what's happened in our space in particular in, in debt capital markets, we've seen a real change. So as I said, you know, DLT was of the moment in 2016, then it went through a period where it wasn't really of the moment. And as you rightly alluded to, it suddenly exploded. And in fact, the whole digitization and automation space within debt capital markets has exploded, as has technology. And the pandemic did a couple of things to help us along our path. You know, the first was to highlight that, in fact, technology does help solve a bunch of problems. So people have suddenly become much more comfortable in a really big picture sense, as an example, large firms, regulated firms, banks, asset managers, et cetera, have become much more comfortable with digital interaction. You know, we're having this on Zoom. Um, they are much more comfortable having cloud-based software deployed and the like. We've also then seen a move towards more focus on the origination process um, and an electronification of that. And we have you know, new competitors entering the space. And then if we go one step further and we think about DLT, as you rightly asked, we've seen a resurgence of that as a field of interest. Why is that? Well, I suspect it's because we've suddenly seen Bitcoin go from an interesting anomaly, something to discuss at dinner parties, to something that's actually at the forefront. And we're beginning to see regulators address it as a legitimate asset class, Bitcoin being shorthand for all cryptocurrencies. And what does that really do is I think that then has people thinking about DLT and its other applications. So what we are doing at Navora is we're looking at our core software, which is a normal digitized process of how you interact in debt capital markets. And we have crafted it such that it is then an on-ramp for DLT issuance when it comes. And I think what we have to all overcome in the market generally is that while DLT is a great concept and it's a really interesting technology, you have to think about what the use cases are and then what has to change in order to make those use cases actually viable. So if we think about it again, in our narrow field of expertise, debt capital markets, you have to see that first asset managers are set up to in fact have wholly blockchain oriented assets come into their, into their world. So what's that require? Well, it kind of requires either a, a central bank digital coin or some accepted medium of cash. They have to then figure out, okay, how do we trade this asset once it shows up in our accounts? So I think those are the sort of hurdles that we all have to work through as well, in addition to thinking about it and to putting it in play. Absolutely. And I was wondering, what's the sort of response that Nivora has seen so far, especially, I'd say, from the most traditional players and institutions in the space? 
And if you've ever encountered maybe lack of understanding or skepticism, how do you sort of tackle that? How do you explain the benefits of this technology to the most traditional parties? Wow, that we could do you know hours on that alone. Um, I think it's really interesting because having spent most of my life inside an investment bank, I, I find it very fun to try to now sell them technology. And one of the problems is that I think banks are just inherently reluctant for anything new. And why is that? Well, because new comes with risks, both operational risks, uh, capital risks, a whole bunch of other things. And so it, it's hard to clear that first hurdle and get people to understand, okay, well, look, this is, this is the technology. This is what it does here where the risks are. And here's what we've done to mitigate the risks. Um, so I think it's an interesting journey to try to, to convey those things to, to people. But what I think is also really interesting is the amount of self-education and the amount of internal innovation that's going on at banks, at asset managers. So what we've seen over the last, I don't know, probably 24 months, maybe even a shorter time period, is banks have started innovation teams and they've started teams that are focused on new technology. And they're not always integrated into the business per se, but they are part and parcel of the bank. And the idea is, okay, these groups will be charged with looking at these new technologies, figuring out how they fit into our existing businesses, whether they're a threat to the business, a help to the business, where we could as a bank or as a manager, profit from them. So I think it's interesting that our, our journey so far has, has been one of education in the early years, one of greater acceptance now. And now it's really about saying, okay, well, here's our technology. Here's how it plugs in and helps you. And having people say, okay, yes, I understand. Here are our hurdles or no, I don't understand. Can you explain further? But I do see a greater acceptance of the, of the whole path where, where it just wasn't the case even you know, 12 to 24 months ago. Brilliant. That's really impressive how things can change so quickly due to massive events, of course, but, uh, you know, the way we adapt as, as a financial industry as a whole. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it, it is, uh, as I was joking with a friend just the other day, one of the most exciting things, and I certainly never thought this, you know, 30 years ago when I started in the markets, but um, it's it's fabulous, right? Things change. And it used to be, you know, as a, as a lifetime as a trader, yes, of course, daily events change, news events change, causes prices to fluctuate. But what I never thought would occur, and it's occurring now, is you get all of this wave of innovation and new way of thinking. So, so a great example, and it ties back to DeFi or ties back to DLT, is this whole decentralized finance and how that's impacting traditional finance. Now, it's not impacting it a lot at the moment, but it will. And the thought process behind it has, and what's driving that thought process? Well, it's technology and it's how we think about technology. So it's exactly as you say, Guy, it's, it's an exciting time to be in the market. 100%. You know, I'm going to pick up on the fact that you mentioned this evolution, innovation, disruption. An emerging phenomenon is the one of ICOs. Maybe for our listeners, we could explain how it works and in which ways representing an alternative to capital markets. I would also like to hear your opinion on this phenomenon, how long we're going to hear about it and, and whether it's going to consolidate or it's just a, a temporary trend. <laughs> Interesting question. Um, so, so the way ICOs work, at least as I understand them, um, is that it's really an alternative means of raising capital. And what happens is an organization, a company, will issue its own digital currency tied to events in its in its lifespan or its business plan. And that digital currency then takes on value in and of itself. 
and then trades accordingly. And so rather than going through the normal laborious lengthy process of, of um, traditional capital raise, you can do it digitally. And it really a- appeals to a different client base, a different investor base. Um, but what I think is interesting, and this may be representative of the afore alluded age that I am, I think what's interesting is that it probably is truly just a, a temporary flash in the pan. And the only reason I say that is really tied to comments from the SEC. And there was an interview, I think two days ago, that uh, the current SEC commissioner gave, uh, head of the SEC gave, and was being interviewed by the former head of the SEC. And they both coalesced around the same thing, that that certain things occurring in the crypto space generally, and, and ICOs would be one of them, come within the radar of regulation because they are tantamount to securities. And the, the US SEC has a case against Ripple in connection with the coin. And, and consequently, I suspect that what we'll see is that ICOs will be parked over in a corner and people won't do that because of the regulatory risk associated with it. But what I do think is gonna happen is we'll see a shift in other elements. And so it will go much towards what we're seeing in DeFi. And we'll begin to see the use of smart contracts to impact the way things are done. And then I know you have you have mentioned in, in some of the stuff that we talked about beforehand, SPACs. And SPACs are another alternative way of raising capital away from traditional things. And I, I saw a stat this morning, which I couldn't get the numbers on, but it looks like something on the order, and I, I, I need to go check, but something on the order of 60 or 65% of IPOs in the US this year were done on SPACs as opposed to the traditional IPO process. And it's really because it's a, it's a faster way, less laborious way to get to the capital markets. And I'm going to, you know, use this opportunity to ask you, I've never fully understood. I've read so many articles about it. Is it becoming a trend? Is it becoming cool to IPO with a SPAC? Or- absolutely, absolutely. And it, it, it's it's super interesting because there are a whole bunch of moving parts to it. But um, yeah, and I think, I think, you know, and this can tie back into Brexit and other interesting things because you're now beginning to see, you know, the UK rules change to facilitate SPACs where they hadn't been really permitted beforehand. And so you've seen, I think, the first SPAC done on the London Stock Exchange in the last month, I believe. You see it happening in other jurisdictions. And it is absolutely a trend. And I think it what it highlights is, you know, markets are fast. If you make it hard for companies to raise capital, or, or not, it's not hard, but it, if you can provide an alternative that's faster and less burdensome, markets are like water, right? Water flows downhill or flows to the, the spot of least resistance. Well, markets and capital and money kind of does the same thing. And so I suspect that that's what we're seeing with, uh, with SPACs as a vehicle for capital raise. Brilliant. Thank you, Scott. This is this was a super interesting conversation. And I would like to conclude with some predictions for the future, maybe in terms of trends and you know, drivers of innovation in, in capital markets, but also how Bora is going to respond to that. So any particular projects you guys are working on or basically what's on the horizon at the moment. Sure, sure. So so look, I, it, predictions, my crystal ball is about as muddy as they can be. But I suspect what we'll continue to see is, you know, new regulation and new regulation, which is focused in our space, at least on uh, transparency, uh, investor protections, et cetera. I think we'll also see greater emergence of new technology and greater acceptance of technology. I mean, part of that is cost-driven. Part of it is, just the need for other means of doing things. 
I think we'll also see, again, in the investment banking and asset management space generally, we'll see a focus or a continued focus on data and relationship ownership. And I think all of those things dovetail very neatly into our product offering as it is and as we imagine it to be in the future. So we're focused on, um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, taking unstructured data, making it structured, but we're also very mindful of who owns that data. So we don't own the data. We want it to belong to the dealer or to the issuer. When I think about new technology and the emergence of that technology and how it fits, you know, we are migrating, as I mentioned earlier, to a world where what we want to do is provide an on-ramp into a DLT future as the market begins to adopt that technology. We don't see it as a tomorrow thing, but it is certainly coming. And within that, you know, trying to craft services that permit investment banks to take those initial steps into a decentralized finance world, perhaps provisioning services to fast money, which will be the, the natural first user of such services. So that's kind of how we see the world. And then of course, we'll we'll stick to our core knitting and continue to improve our core software offering, our Aurora software, and hopefully move forward in a happy way. Thank you. So it's definitely interesting times for regulators, <laughs> um, yes, but is. also for, for yourself, for Nivora is definitely an exciting moment to be operating in. Thank you so much, Scott, CEO of Nivora. It was a pleasure and I really look forward to hearing back from you very soon or having you again on the podcast with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Guy. It was wonderful to speak with you.